0: We are in week six. Uh, we are wrapping up our series on the prodigal son. Um, and for those um, of you who are not familiar or you haven't necessarily had the opportunity to be here every week, I would encourage you, listen online, uh, download the podcast, watch the video, whatever you need to do. But, but what we've seen is this incredible story of the prodigal told in Scripture. Luke 15 lays this out for us, verses 11, and we're going to finish up through 32 today. But it lays this out for us, this story of the prodigal, who is the younger brother, who, if you'll remember, he, he steps into uh, the presence of his father, who is good and gracious and has provided for him his entire life. And he steps into the presence of his father and he says, I want my share of the inheritance now. Even though you're alive, even though you're healthy, even though I have a role to play as your son, I want my share of the inheritance. Basically saying to his father, I wish you were dead his father, not happy, just like God isn't happy when we walk away, but his father allows him to go. And so the son takes his his money and he wanders to what we, uh, what scripture tells us and and what we understand to be the distant country. And the distant country is, is any place that you are, um, that is, that is far from God. And it doesn't have to be physical, uh, for most of us, our distant country isn't physical. For most of us, our distant country is this area where we've roped off in our brains and in our lives and say, okay, God, you're not allowed in here. You can have this, but this part, you're not allowed. And so what happens is we, we get to the distant country and the prodigal gets there. And you know what? It's not all bad at first. If we're honest, right? He has a good time. He's a young man, 18, 19, 20 years old, and he has a, a wad of cash in his pocket. And he spends it all in wild living. So we know he's there. He's, he's having fun in the distant country for a minute. But then what happens to him is what happens to all of us when we play with sin. It leads to death. Sin always leads to death. No matter how enjoyable it might be. No matter how fun it might be. No matter how attractive it might be. No matter how much we like to dabble with it, sin always leads to death. And the next thing you know, the prodigal son is broke. There's a famine in the land. All of his so-called friends have left him. And he's sitting in a pig pen, dying, literally dying of hunger, wishing he could get away with eating the pig slop. And that's when That's when he has his sudden awakening. That's when he has his aha moment. Remember, we said the aha moment is the God moment that changes everything. And it can change everything in your life, too. You may not be sitting in a pig pen, okay? Maybe you are, right? Maybe wherever your distant country is, you are that far gone that you are sitting in a pig pen, starving to death. Odds are you're not quite that far yet. Because if you were that far, we would have talked about it. Because everybody else always knows you're in a pig pen before you do. Everybody else has always picked up on the fact that you are that far gone before you've picked up on the fact that you're that far gone. Okay, but we're wandering. We do. We do this. We walk away. We get to a point where, where all of a sudden we have this God moment if we listen to it. Okay, and so here's my question for you as we end the series today. As, as we get into this and end this, it's how is your story going to end? Because there are four steps to this. Three of them we've talked about. We've got one to hit yet today, but how is your aha story going to end? This is what we have to wrestle with and figure out today. How's it going to end? Okay, remember there's there's these three steps that we've had so far, these three necessary elements. The first is sudden awakening. That's where God wakes you up, where the alarm clock sounds. And when you're in the distant country, God is sounding alarms. I mean, He is sounding alarms. Most of the time, we've gotten pretty good at ignoring them. But eventually, eventually, God will sound an alarm in your life and you will hear it. And you will come to a sudden awakening, a realization where you realize something is true and it's always been true. You've just never realized that it was true. And then all of a sudden, you can wrap your head around this and you're like, okay, I get it now. The problem is for a lot of us, we never move past sudden awakening because Satan is pretty good at what he does. And we kind of like our sin, and we like being comfortable, and we like things staying the way they are. And so what happens is we kind of enter into this where we have this sudden awakening, and we realize something is true that we've never realized was true before, and so what do we do? We shut it down. It's like all of a sudden I realize that, you know what? I'm on the road to unfaithfulness in my marriage. I've been flirting a lot, and I've been having tingly feelings about the person at the office. I'm on my—I'm on the road to unfaithfulness in my marriage. But you know what? You know what? I shut that down, and I don't worry about it because, well, it's not something I have to, I have to worry about. I'll never go there. And so what happens is I just kind of ignore the alarm clock. I hit the snooze button. Right? Or you say, man, I, I, am, I am living a life that I said I was never going to live. I'm doing things that I said I was never going to do. I'm stuck in sin that I always look down on people for being stuck in. And, and what's the problem with this? Why, why am I here? And, and then you know what? Instead of answering that alarm, that sudden awakening, I shut it down. Like that's just religious guilt creeping in, trying to get me. And so I push it away. But it's not just a sudden awakening. See, it only works when, when sudden awakening Um, takes this next step. And see, sudden awakening is God. That's God's conviction in your heart. That is God sounding the alarm. But this next step is all you. What has to happen for you is, is you have to wake up and you have to look in the mirror and you have to be brutally honest. Where am I? How did I get here? What choices did I make to land myself here? Whose fault is it that I'm here? And we said here in this brutal, honest, man, we are are awesome at blaming everybody else, right? It's the church's fault because they were too controlling. It's my parents' fault because they were too restrictive. It's my parents' fault because I suffered some abuse maybe at their hands. And look, none of that is good. It is all bad. But at some point in time, when you find yourself in the distant country and God has sounded the alarm, you have to look in the mirror and you have to say, you know what? I'm here because I was wrong and I've sinned. At some point in time, it's got to be on you. At some point in time, you've got you've to look in the mirror and say, you know what? It's my fault that I've stepped out of my marriage. Yeah, my, my spouse was controlling and nagging, but I made the decisions. At some point in time, you've got to look in the mirror and say, you know what? It's my fault that I struggle with drugs and alcohol. Yes, I have a hereditary issue. Yes, all of this is true. Yes, the stress at my work is so much, and, and, and the bills are so demanding, and they pile up, that, that yes, maybe maybe it, it drew me away, but you know what? I'm the one that keeps doing it over and over and over again. So we have to look in the mirror, and we have to be brutally honest, and that's still not enough, though. What happens if we're brutally honest, but nothing changes? That's just like this spiritual band-aid. It doesn't fix anything. It makes us feel better for a second, See, and we said a lot of us don't take this next step because we don't, we don't understand the difference between feeling different and being different, right? And and it's one thing to say you know what I know that I need to do this. It's another thing to say okay, but I'm gonna actually go ahead and do it. It's one thing to know, Hans, you got to lose some weight and you got to get healthier. It's another thing to wake up at six o'clock and hop on the treadmill and to say no to the donut. See, feeling different doesn't necessarily make things different. And so we have to follow all of this up with immediate action. But even then, even then, the story's not over. Because at immediate action, the story's not over. And the story's not over because it was never your story. See, this is the thing that we have to understand today. Right? This has always been, oh man, that's, that's the one. When you truly engage in aha, this has never been about self-help. And when you're truly engaged in this God God moment that changes everything, you get this. This was never about self-help. This was never about you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. This was never about you buckling down and trying harder. When you really engage in self-help, you understand that this was never really about you changing who you are because I'm going to be bluntly honest with you. Who you are, who I am, is broken and messy and sinful. Who you are is, despite your best intentions, flawed at the core. Who I am is, despite my best intentions, flawed at the core. And try as I might... I'm not going to be able to fix myself. But what we're talking about here, what we've been talking about, what the prodigal has discovered, is this is a God moment that changes everything for you. It is where you can tell that the power of the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, has been working in and through the circumstances that have happened to get you to the point where you have decided to take your first step home. And your first step home is the hardest step there is. But God has worked in your life and gotten to the point where you are willing to take this first step home. You didn't do that. God did that. God is the author of AHA. God is the author of this movement in your life. And when you let God author, listen to me, you've got to get this as we wrap up this series. Because some of you are so far away in the distant country still, and some of you are stuck at that point where I feel different, so therefore I must be different. And that's not good enough. See, some of you are at the point where I've recognized that I am a sinner and that I have sinned, and that recognition causes you a little bit of relief, that you are there because you took yourself there, and so I feel relieved at that, but nothing has changed because you're not doing anything different. Because what's happened is you're, you're settling for realization instead of this movement, but when you understand that God is the author of your aha story, here's what happens. It ends and starts in the same place. And your world, your reality might look a whole lot different by the time you get back. But it starts at the Father's house where you walk away. And it ends in the Father's house where he welcomes you home. And, and along the way... And there are a lot of things that have gone wrong and a lot, of, a lot of things that you have to deal with. And so maybe you're busted now and you used to be financially secure, but you walked away and you did some stupid and you gambled your money away. And all of a sudden now God has authored your aha story and you've come back. And you're broke now, but you're back where you started. You're back home with the Father and that's where you need to be. You know, perhaps you decided that wild living was a good idea, and so you stepped out, and you went your own way, and and it ended in heartbreak and abortion and broken relationships. And God has called you back, and you've answered the alarm, and you've been honest, and you've taken steps, and you've come home. You know what? There is a slew of emotional baggage and wreckage that needs to be worked through. But you are back home with the Father where you belong. I mean, I don't care what the trajectory is. Yes, there's going to be things that have to be dealt with. Coming home does not fix your whole life. But coming home fixes your whole life. And that's the call. This isn't self-help. This is this God moment that God does, and it's not over yet. There's there's one more step that that we have to deal with here uh, when we deal with aha. Because once you come home— there's something that happens. It's the reality of this uh, that I want you to see. Look here. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And so I want you to picture this. Eidelman uh, sums this up so great in his book. And so we're going to walk down this, this journey that he has a little bit. But picture it. In the distance, you, you see the sun. A young man beat down and tired. His, his clothes are ragged and torn. His sleeves are caked with mud. And he is slowly trudging along on his way. And all of the sudden, you can't see him anymore. You can't see him anymore because there's a figure from the porch, an older man whose silhouette now that he's up and he's off the porch and he is running to meet the younger man, that, that he is blocking him out, and he is moving with such passion and such fury. And when he gets there, tears streaming down everybody's faces, he he grabs him and he embraces him. And then you can see that, that the younger man with solemnness in his eyes and brokenness on his face and tears streaming down his cheek, tries to utter some words to the older man. But the older man just doesn't even seem to hear them. And he just holds him in an embrace and he turns around behind him and he shouts to people back at the house. And the next thing you know, we we fast forward to that night where the entire courtyard is filled with tables full of food and, and drinks and people sitting around and laughing and celebrating. And all eyes, nobody eats yet. All eyes are at the big table in the corner. And we look and we see the same young man. This time he's got a little more color in his face and he's a whole lot cleaner and he wears a resplendent robe. And then all eyes shift to the older man as he stands up and he raises a glass and he shares a toast and everyone applauds and everyone drinks. See, this is the homecoming that happens. And so many times we think we come home, and what happens when we come home is that um, now we have to pay something called penance. See, you think when you get home to the father's house that the father is all ready to forgive you, but first you've got to make up for your mistakes. And so we get home and and we think, okay, so now I've got to earn it all back. But here's what happens. The young man walks back. The father embraces him. And the first thing they do, it's underlined on the screen. The first thing they do in verse 24, they began to celebrate and they celebrate because that's the way that God is. See, the God of this story, the God of the universe, he is a celebrating God, and he is about one thing and one thing only, and that is about you coming home. And so he is desperate to celebrate with you, okay? That's what he really wants. He wants to celebrate your homecoming, See, God wants to write the last chapter of your story. And so as we sit here today and we wrap up this series, I don't know where your distant country is and I don't know what you struggle with, but I know that the God of the universe wants to write your last chapter and he wants to call it celebration because that's what he's about. With God. Now, I want to say this carefully because I I don't want to discount sin. Sin is real and the carnage that it leaves in your life is real. The carnage that sin leaves in your life is real, and it hurts, and it's hard. And you can't just wipe that away or sweep it under a rug. But what happens is the carnage of sin that you have to weed through, what that is, is that is ripple effects from your decision. That is not God. And I think we need to start to understand that better. See, sometimes we have this idea that God is out to get us. God is not out to get you. God allows things in your life to sound the alarm, and God allows things in your life to wake you up. But God is not punishing you because of your mistakes. You live in a broken world, and in a broken world, there are consequences for broken behavior. And so, some of you are living that right now. In a broken world, when you're an alcoholic, that costs you relationships with your families. And even after you stop being an alcoholic, you may have to deal with the aftermath of that. In this world where you decide that you want to be in a relationship with somebody um, and be sexual with somebody that you're not married to, and you get pregnant, you've got to deal with the aftermath of that. God isn't going to just take that away. And you've got to decide right then and there that you're going to start doing things God's way or doing things a different way. So some of you might be in a position where you have children outside of marriage, and it's hard. And you're like, but if I came home to God, why is it so hard? Well, it's so hard because that's the decision you made, and there are these ripples that come from it. But God is not doing that to you. God is not out to get you. Some of you in that very situation, and men included, would encourage women to, to you know, go and, and have an abortion. Make it like it didn't happen, but we all know that's not making it like it didn't happen. The shame and the guilt that come from that can be so great, and if you've experienced that today, listen to me, I'm not mad at you, but you know what I'm talking about. The shame and the guilt from that can just eat at you. You're like, but, but I came home, so why can't I just forget about that mistake? And you know what? Sometimes it's hard to get past that shame, but you know what? God isn't mad at you. God wants to write the last chapter of your story, and he wants to call it celebration. Because when you came home, that's the way he acted. He celebrated. In fact, the word tells us, remember this whole thing starts with Jesus um, trying to explain himself further. Here's what he's trying to explain further. Luke 15:7, he says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who don't need to, be, to repent. By the way, just as a point of clarification, there are no 99 righteous people who don't need to repent right? There are no 99 righteous people that don't need to repent. We're actually going to talk about them in a minute when we get to the older brother, but just put a pin in that for a second. But he says, there is more celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 people who think they're already awesome. And he says, and there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is so much rejoicing over one that comes home. God wants to write your last chapter and he wants it to be celebration. And that's what this whole thing has been about, is to paint this picture that when you come home, yes, there is carnage. Yes, there are problems. That's why taking the first step is so hard. Because you have to get up and you have to look in the mirror and you have to be brutally honest and you have to take a step towards making everything right again. But when you take the step, God wants to celebrate. He is celebrating. God wants to celebrate because this is so good. See, sometimes we think of repentance as this awful, terrible, horrible thing. But this is so good because when you come home, there is celebration and there is joy and there is beauty, and and it, it doesn't get better. We keep going, though, and the reason we keep going is because even though God wants to write the last chapter, which is celebration, we haven't talked about half of you in the room. We've spent five weeks, now five and a half weeks, talking about half of you, and now we need to take a few minutes and talk about the other half. I'm assuming. Right? I don't have names like picked out in my head or anything. But those of you that are astute will remember at the beginning of this story that Jesus said there was an older man who had two brothers, or two sons. There was an older um, son and a younger son. And then he spent the entire story talking about the younger son. And then when they get to the point where he says, and then they celebrated, they would have assumed, everybody listening would have assumed, oh, hey, story's over. Right? There was a guy who was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was in darkness. Now he's in light. He's been restored and they celebrated. That is such a cool story. Everybody would have felt really good about themselves, except that's not really how it went because not everybody felt really good about that. Because there were half the people that Jesus was talking to that were angry at such extravagant grace. Half of the people that Jesus was talking to were clamoring for the judgment. Where's the judgment? where's the necessary payment? Where's the penalty for his stupidity? He went, I mean, think about this. He said, he looked you in the face and he said, I wish you were dead. He took your money and he went and he spent it on prostitutes, beer, drugs, alcohol. There probably wasn't a whole lot of beer, but wine, whatever. He blew it all on wild living, parties and orgies. And now because he's broke, because there's no more money left, he comes home with his tail between his legs and he says, Hey, forgive me. And you give him all this grace and you give him all this stuff and you forgive him like it was nothing. Half the audience would have been appalled. See, we, we listen to that story and we're like, Oh, that's a cute story about how God is gracious and that's nice. Half the audience would have been angry. They were the same people that were angry at Jesus. In fact, if we set the stage for this, you'll see how this works. Let me skip ahead. There you go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's verse one. Verse two, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered about Jesus. This man welcomes sinners. The word there for sinners, what he means is filth the dregs of society, the lowest of the low, he welcomes them, and he eats with them, and that is ridiculous. In fact, what they had said about Jesus was this guy can't possibly be the son of God that he claims to be, because if he were the son of God that he claimed to be, he would know that person is garbage and doesn't even belong in a church, much less sitting at his feet and listening to his teaching. Remember earlier when I said that's why we keep the front door of the church so wide open, because everybody is welcome here. Because if everybody is not welcome here, then we are being an awful lot like the Pharisees who say, hey, only a certain kind of person gets to be here. And you're not going to get us to act like the Pharisees and say a certain kind of people can get here. We don't want to be that group. We want everyone to come because grace is for everybody. But here's the point. Jesus is having this talk, and he's, he's talking to all parts of the spectrum. Here he's got tax collectors and sinners, notorious sinners, bad folks. And here he's got the religious elite. And these guys are hanging on every word that Jesus says because they want to know and they want to be changed and they want their lives to make sense and they want it to be better. And these guys aren't hearing a word he says because they're mad that they're here, they're mad that he got invited. That they have the audacity to show up, and Jesus didn't escort them out. And so Jesus tells the story, and he's telling it to both of those groups of people. See, Jesus knows something, and you know what's interesting? Is when it comes to, when it comes to um, the story of the prodigal son, all of us relate to the younger son. Like, we all relate to the younger son. We're like, yes, we all have made silly mistakes, and we all have gone our own way, and all of us have been welcomed back by God. But it's really hard for older brothers to admit that they're older brothers. It's really hard for Pharisees to admit that they're being Pharisaical. It's really hard sometimes for Christians at church to realize that they're being so judgmental that they're keeping people from the gospel. And Jesus tells the story for them too. He wants us all to know it. And so we look at the rest. So, so we see this, um, meanwhile, and they celebrated, uh, but the older son is in the field. Meanwhile, the older son's in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. See, get this. The older son is in the field. The older son is in the field like he has been every day of his adult life. Every day he's been in the field. Every day he's been doing the Father's will. Every day he's been out there working hard for the Father's benefit. Every day he's been doing what he was supposed to be doing. Every day he's been sweating and and grunting and working and hurting for the sake of the Father. Every day. That's where he is when the son comes home. That's why he's not there with the father sitting on the porch. He is out working the field, working the ground every day, doing exactly what he was supposed to, checking it off the list, showing up, being there, putting in the time, doing it all every day. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when the family, or when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing because they were celebrating. So we called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And the servant excitedly replies, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Because he was lost, and now he's found. And he was presumed to be dead, and now we know that he's alive. And this is good. But not to the older brother. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. And I want you to understand something here, too. Jesus is really hard on older brothers. All through the New Testament, when you read through the New Testament, Jesus is really hard on older brothers. He doesn't pull any punches. He calls them whitewashed tombs, says they're dead, says that not only do they not help people, they keep people away from God. Jesus is really hard on older brothers. But even here, even in the story that he's telling, for their benefit as much as for the notorious tax collectors and sinners, he's telling them this story. And here's what he says, get this, the older brother became angry at the extravagant grace of the father. And so what did he do? The father went out to plead with him. So if you're here today, and and, and as we talk about this, you're thinking, am I an older brother? Am I in that camp in this? Am I angry at people? Do I refuse to celebrate? See, because some of you here, you refuse to celebrate. When sinners come home, when people repent— when people hear the gospel that need to hear the gospel, instead of celebrating that they hear the gospel, we get frustrated. Who do they think they are? And we, and we say things, um, and we may not understand exactly what we're saying, but really what we're saying is they need to go get themselves cleaned up first, then they can come to my church. They need to go get themselves cleaned up first, and then I will start to be welcoming them back into my life. It's this attitude of unforgiveness that we have sometimes. I mean, we we say things like, well, let's give it time. Or what's the plan for them to earn it back? You know, we have this attitude of, I'm not going to forgive that because it really hurt. Or they're really far away and they need to show themselves. They need to demonstrate it before I'll believe it. But the father wouldn't even let the kid get his words out. He's basically like, shut up kill the cow, we're going to celebrate because you were lost and now you're found. But he's telling this story to two people. And so the older brother became angry and refused to go in, but the father went out and pleaded with him. He was watching for the younger son to come home and he is going out to talk to the other son who is also, listen to me, who is also far from God. We can think about what's sadder here. Think about what's sadder. Somebody who walked away from the Father and who went and had terrible experiences and a terrible life in the distant country, who committed atrocious sin, and who had an aha moment and came home, or a guy who was home with the Father the whole time, but their hearts were still far away, and he's never experienced aha because he just didn't think he needed it. Which one's sadder? This guy's life is cleaner. This guy's life, the older brother's life, makes more sense. There are not the carnage to deal with in his life that there is in the younger son's life. But he has never experienced this God moment that changes everything. He just hasn't had it. Because he thought he was good enough, and he thought he was good enough because of the things that he'd done. You keep going. Um, but he answered his father... This is the son. The father pleads with him to come home, but the older brother answers his father, Look, all of these years I've been slaving away for you. I've never disobeyed your orders once. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, and you can almost hear the contempt in his voice when he says that, but this son of yours squanders away your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. There is resentment, contempt in the voice, accusation. You've never done anything for me. I've spent my whole life doing what you wanted, and you've never done anything like this for me. The problem with older brothers and the problem with us when we act like that is that we feel really entitled because we've done certain things that we think have earned us some kind of sway with the Father. It's the reason that I have such a problem with with health and prosperity gospel because this is exactly what prosperity gospel teaches. Prosperity gospel teaches that if I've done for you you kind of owe me I mean, you could at least have given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. I don't know exactly how they were going to celebrate, right? I, is goat tasty? Were they going to, like, I, I don't know. But they were going to celebrate, and they were going to have a good time. And, 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 but no, you haven't even given me that, and I've earned that. See, listen to that. I've earned it because I never disobeyed you. I never stepped out. I never went away to the distant country. I should have earned this And when Jesus is saying this, you gotta hope that it's hitting the Pharisees right between the eyes. Because that's half of the audience who's like, How dare you show grace to these people? And Jesus is like, Man, listen, get this. Scribes, teachers of the law, yeah, you get up early in the morning and you study scripture. And yeah, you know what? You actually serve at the temple. And yes, you are there ministering every day, but you know what? You've missed the heart of this whole thing. And the heart of this whole thing is this was always about grace. Right? So the Pharisees and the older brothers, um, and, and, and a lot of us, I think, myself included at times, our understanding of God is flawed. Right? We, we see God as harsh and unforgiving. We kind of view God as a cosmic cop patrolling the universe right? And that God is out to get you. And the Pharisees saw it that way. The older brother sees it that way. And so here's my question for some of you. Do you see it that way? I mean, if you can strip it all away and you can just see it for what it is, is your heart for some people filled more with grace? Or is your heart for some people filled more with gotcha? Because if your heart is filled more with gotcha, then then you might be an older brother. And older brothers have a wrong view of God. You know what I want you to think? Don't think of cosmic cop. Think of paramedic. See, because when we have this wrong view of God, when this is what we think God is like, we tend to act like that. We tend to act like that. The Pharisees acted like that. The older brother acted like that. They acted like a cop that was waiting to get people, to get the younger brother. Where's the justice? Where's the judgment? At least he ought to have to suffer for his sin. At least he ought to have to make it up. At least he ought to have to earn back the money while he rots in debtor's prison. He ought to have to do something to make up for it. And we have this role. We see God as this thing. And so we act that way towards other people. And we, when we do that, we're being older brother-esque. When really what we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be like the father. And the father here is not acting like a cosmic cop. The father here is acting like a paramedic. Now here's the thing. Understand this. I don't know a lot about cops and paramedics. You can talk to Mark or Blake or Ben or somebody else, Ross. I, somebody that's not me, you can talk to them about this kind of thing. But but we're talking here is a paramedic in this instance. This is somebody that's supposed to save. This is somebody that's supposed to free the trapped. Now, You ever wonder why the ambulance shows up not that far— I'm sorry, the fire truck shows up not that far after the ambulance when there's a car accident? Right? The police come, but then the ambulance and the fire truck come too. Because yes, maybe blame needs to be assigned. Maybe something needs to happen. But what if people need saved? What if the trapped need freed and the wounded need bandaged? Right? And the wandering need to be welcomed back. So this is, this is what we have to wrestle with. So a couple things that I want you to see in the text. okay? Um, older brothers, Pharisees, and perhaps this resonates with some of you. Some of us are overconfident in our own goodness. This is what he said uh, going back in verse 29. He says, But he answered, Father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He is overconfident in his own goodness. What he's failing to realize is that he is as dependent on the father as the brother ever was, and that he looks to the father for everything good in his life, just like the younger brother. But because he has done good things, he is fairly certain that he has earned his place at the table. He's fairly certain that he's earned it. Some of us, because we've been really religious in our life, because we grew up in the church, because we were baptized or confirmed or whatever. You know, we went through this process. Then when I got older, I repeated the right words, and I was confirmed, and that was good, and I I did my communion, and I read the Bible, and I show up at church. Man, we do that stuff, and we're like, okay, we're good, we've earned it. Like, I am good with the God of the universe because I have done all of those things. And when that's what you're banking on, if you are here today, listen, this, I think I've told you this before, but it breaks my heart and it keeps me up some nights that there are people that attend church regularly that still are not Christians. The fact that there may be somebody who shows up every Sunday but is not a Christian, and they're not a Christian because they've never decided that they can't do it on their own and that they better trust Jesus to do what they never could do, that breaks my heart, and, and it makes me lose sleep because here's what happens. We trust in our own goodness. We've done these things. We've gone through the process. We've jumped through the hoops. When I, when I sit down with somebody, oh my goodness, when I sit down with somebody um, to do a funeral, and I ask the question, I always ask the question, like, tell me about their faith. Oh, God was really important to them. They were baptized when they were a baby, and... They said their confirmation, and they repeated all the stuff, and they took communion. And they haven't been to church since. That was 60 years ago. They haven't been to church, but, but they're good because they did those things, and so they're all set. Like I, I'm not sure that we understand how it works. That's very older brother-ish. That somehow I can earn this, and it's going to be all right. If you're here today and you're thinking that your religious work, you're showing up, you're serving in a ministry team, you're reading your Bible, you're doing this stuff, you're knowing stuff, that's what makes you right with God. You are woefully mistaken. Listen to me. You can't know enough to be right with God. You can surrender to Jesus and be right with God. See, the older brother comes with his resume. The younger brother comes with his plea for mercy. There's a significant difference. And on this one... God puts a resplendent robe and a ring on his finger and he kills the cow and he says, let's celebrate this one. He leaves in the field. Older brothers are overconfident in their own goodness and older brothers are hypercritical of other people's sin. Just like the older brother was, he says, When when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you do this for him. Overcritical of their sin. The Pharisees ignored their own sin, but were so critical of everybody else's. And God is hard on older brothers. You know why? Because they represent him. You ever go to a restaurant? Okay, that was a dumb question but you didn't even say yes. Do you ever go to a restaurant? Sure you do. Gosh, There's a restaurant that we like to go to in town sometimes. You can guess which one it is. I'm not going to tell you. There's only like four. (laughs) But when we first moved here, we liked to go there a lot. But you would order something, and it's not what they would bring you. Like, I would order food. Like, you know what? I really want this great choice, and they would go away, and later they would bring me something that was most certainly not that. Pretty soon, we'd stop going there. And we stopped going there, not because our waitress, who couldn't get it right, was the restaurant, right? I mean, she's just one person that worked in the restaurant. She's not the restaurant. She's just that one person. But in our eyes, that's exactly who she represented. And when she didn't care that she got our order wrong, then you know what? All of a sudden, that meant we didn't want anything to do with that restaurant. Right? Because we would say to her, oh, that's not what we ordered. Yes, it is. Like, okay. Like, not a lot you can do to argue with that. But you know what we could do? We'd stop going. See, and and Pharisees and older brothers are kind of like waiters and waitresses in the restaurant. You you aren't God. But you know what? When people look at you, you are the representation. And if you're going to act like an older brother, if you're going to act like, how dare you come home? What right do you have to come home? How have you gone out and earned your own right to come home? God has harsh words for them, all through Scripture. He still wants them. He still wants them to repent. He still wants them. But, but look, what he's telling them is, look, you are not any better than they are. You are just as lost. You are just as broken. You are just in, as need, in need of saving. You just don't know it, and so they're better. Jesus says this, I haven't come to heal the healthy. I've come to heal the sick who know they need a doctor. And what Jesus is not saying is, there are healthy people that don't need me. What he's saying is, I'm not wasting my time here because you don't even think you need me. I'm gonna go here where these people are saying, help me, help me, help me, I'm broken. Jesus starts this whole thing off by saying, just like this, when there is, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 people who think they're good enough. None of those 99 people who think they're good enough None of that is cause for celebration. That's cause for mourning and pain because they're not good enough. They just don't know it yet. But this one person who knows they need to repent, yes, let's celebrate over that. If you're here today and you're an older brother, then listen, listen to me very carefully as we, as we start to wrap this all up. I need you to come home. I need you to come home. God needs you to come home. You maybe didn't wander as far as anybody else. You might just be hanging out in the backyard somewhere right but you got to come home too you got to get your heart right with the father you got to come home you got to understand that you are just as desperately in need as the younger brother see we've gone through this whole series and some of you this whole series have been thinking really hard about the person that you think needs to hear this you don't have to raise your hand and admit that but i know a lot of you as we've talked about being in the distant country and and, and oh somebody needs their aha moment somebody needs their sudden awakening a lot of you have had somebody's face in your brain I wish they were here. I wish they'd listen. I wonder if I can send them the link without them getting offended. Like you've invited people, you're like, look, you really need to hear what what we're talking about at church because you are in the distant country. So a lot of us, we, we automatically picture that other people are in the distant country. If you, instead of thinking to yourself, man, how do I need to come home? If you've been thinking about everybody else, that's a good indicator that maybe, maybe you're at least bordering on being an older brother. But the good news is this. No matter who you are, no matter how you got there, no matter where you go, God is desperate for you. Because here's how he wants to end it. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And he's found. And so this seems like just as good a place to any to end as any. Ultimately, the story in Luke 15 is not about two kids who disobey. One disobeys wildly, one disobeys in his heart. But it's not about two kids who disobey. The story is about a father who loves his children unconditionally and will long to make provision for them to come home. Your father, sitting on the porch, waiting for you to come home, and your father is leaving the celebration to walk out to the yard to find out where you are and encourage you to come in. That's all there is to it. It's that simple. No matter how lost you are, this story is not about whether you were the younger son. This story is not about whether or not you were the older brother. It was told to engage both sinners and Pharisees. The story was never about them, though. The story was always about a God who does whatever it takes to love his children unconditionally and bring them back home. That's the God we serve, and that's what the cross is about. So if you've been sitting here in this series, and you have been processing and tracking and understanding a little bit, but you are someone, whether you're a younger brother or an older brother, you are someone who has never engaged the cross of Jesus Christ for the, for the benefit of your salvation. You are never someone who has said, I am a sinner, and I need to be saved, and I can only be saved by grace and grace alone. If that is not you, then this is the time for that. This is the time for that. It has to be. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask Malia and the praise team to come up, and they're going to do some things to close out the service. But as I pray for you, look, just in the heart of hearts, if you are at a point where you need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you need to come home, then I want you to do that with me. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for, for what this story, uh, the story of the prodigal son, what it represents. And what it represents, God, is the fact that, that no matter how lost and broken we are, and no matter how confident we are in ourselves, that we all are in need of the cross. That we all are in need of grace. And God, you are a father who is willing to give it freely. Father, you have died on the cross so that we could experience Um, unmerited grace that we could experience this extravagant favor from you that you would pull us up and that you would heal us and you would cleanse us and you would make us right Father that you would send your one and only son so that he would willingly die as a punishment for the mistakes that I've made and that he would rise from the grave conquering death so that I could be right with you once and for all for all time Father, we just love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. And if there is somebody here that has not made the decision to follow you, Father, my prayer is that they would decide now. That in the quietness of their heart, with heads bowed and eyes closed, that they would just surrender to you once and for all. That they would, that they would walk away from the pig pen. And that they would even step back from their own goodness. And they would recognize that all of it, all of it is broken. And that none of it is good enough. And that ultimately, God, they would trust you to come home. That they would admit their sinfulness. And they would make a decision to follow and serve you as the Lord of their lives. God, we love you. We praise you. We just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come home. Amen.